up tonight, we have Talk Shop, and that will be happening right now. Hey, we're having a few little technical difficulties here, but stay tuned.
I'm Ira Glass. This week on This American Life, one of the people who works here at the radio show, a scientist by training, thinks that there is no such thing as free will. So I would say he decided to do a story for our show about that. He would say he had no choice. Atoms and neurons inside him turned and churned like pieces of a machine, and he did what they commanded. This week. That's This American Life, Saturday evening at 6. Concord, New Hampshire. It's Wednesday, November 14th. Woke up, uh, was, went for a walk. It was about 29 degrees. It was just charming. Um, and then turned on to learn more about the incredible fires in California and more and more dead are being found. And now they're asking for the National Guard to assist, which is just remarkable. Well, they ought to pull all those people off the border. I Thank you. I was just going to say that. Oh. Yeah, good. <laughs> I just, I, and we didn't plan I, that, that in advance. No, I was just going to say that. Absolutely. Have them do something that's useful and, and necessary. Anyway, all right. On this November 14th on The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and co-host Susan Bruce, where is Susan Bruce going? History or poetry? I have a poem. Oh, okay. It is called Night Travelers by Glenn Sorestad. Mm-hmm. She begins to slow the car as the highway approaches the descent into the river valley. Usually there are deer along this stretch of road. In the pale wash of headlights, as if invoked from the darkness, two mule deer in slow motion step up the road embankment, intent on crossing. We follow our lights, our pathways. Deer follow theirs. If we are lucky, our ways do not merge. She shows the patience of one at home with animals of the night, slows the vehicle to a crawl. The deer stop, heads up, like spotlit statues, cardboard cutouts. They wait for us to creep past. I see them here often, is all she says. As we slowly make our way up the river, across the slope to the other side without further incident. She loves these animals, would never want them hurt. She does not begrudge the time it takes to share this space, the night, and all those who move through it. So as you're reading this poet poem, I think I told you that my friend that I walk with, uh, her car was hit by a four-point buck, uh, and that there were three incidents just in that night where cars, this is like in a three-hour period uh, on 202, a bear was hit, a deer was hit, and then this huge buck was hit. The, the cop could not believe it. I mean, he was just like shocked. But here's the interesting thing about New Hampshire. So it's huge, huge deer. And they're looking at it, and so they're like, what are we going to do with this? Because I know exactly what I'm going to do with this. He called the family up, and within 10 minutes, a pickup truck and seven boys show up to pick up the deer, and they're going to carve the deer up and put it in. 
And and that's the wonderful thing about a small town oh, and yeah, the local a lot cop. Of them. They know exactly who to call. And apparently, this is a family that can only eat venison. There's the one of the members of the family has an allergy to whatever it is. And so, but it was just he said it was amazing to watch. Literally within seconds, and they were ready to do it. It was oh, just a incredible. lot of a lot of um, food pantries will send people out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing here in New Hampshire. I, of course, had the wonderful experience of hitting a moose in two thousand three. Oh my god! Uh, yes, I've been chased by one, but yes. I've never I've never hit. No, one. I hit it. Yeah, there yeah. was no way to avoid it. When yeah. I picked it up in the headlights at midnight on a dark road, it was running full tilt towards me and there wasn't any way I could not hit it. But I was fortunate that I just automatically took the measures that I could. Mm -hmm. He was coming up on my uh, passenger side, so I swerved as hard as I could to the left so that I wouldn't hit him head on. Right, right. And jammed on the jammed oh no no he came up the windshield towards me oh Oh, yeah i I really you know they say that that in those moments your your life flashes before your eyes all i thought was moose coming in not not gonna be good (laughs) (laughs) well and my windshield bowed in but it held yeah oh it spiderwebbed into a thousand cracks right right but the moose slid off the other side, yeah. and by then I was on the wrong side of the road, and I just parked, and I was, I just fell, practically fell out of my car. I was shaking, yeah. and so the moose was standing there looking at me like, "Oh, what just happened here?" And I'm pretty sure I had the identical look yeah. on my face. And um, the moose was standing still. The moose was okay. Oh God! Yeah. Oh God! Yes, as uh, they're huge. As they're the huge. late David Emerson commented at the time, the moose lived, and so did the Bruce. And so did the Bruce. Very nice. Very nice. All right, everyone. Um, but before I I go into our Congresswoman of the day, uh, I want to just comment on something that a friend of mine sent me, and he was talking about the election, and he was looking at the 2014 election in New Hampshire, and he went to two college towns. Durham, New Hampshire, where UNH is, and uh, Plymouth, New Hampshire, where there is Plymouth State College, and uh, and Plymouth, actually, and Dartmouth. So here's what he just sort of showed me. Uh, in Durham in 2014, the Democrat had a 1,600-vote advantage. In 2018, the Democrat had a 4,000-vote advantage. These are college towns. These are young people who are being told, basically, we don't want you to exercise the franchise. Then he went up to the other district. In Hanover and Plymouth, New Hampshire, Annie McLean Custer was running in 2014. She had a 2,100 vote advantage in 2014. In 2018, she had a 5,800 vote advantage. So uh, not only did voter suppression not necessarily work, but I think in a lot of ways you antagonized a lot of young people. And as a result, they showed up. So uh, meet the new members of Congress. This may be a little bit premature, but it looks like she's going to win. And uh, we have David Dayan joining us today, and we adore David because we want we want to know what David is thinking about the midterms. We want to know what David is thinking about financial regulation. We want to know what David is thinking about consumer protection. I mean, we just we like him because we like his head, we like his mind, and we like where he goes. And so before I grabbed David, um, I went to David's tweet feed. And I saw David tweeting over and over and over again about a Democrat named Katie Porter. 
And I thought, who the heck is this Katie Porter? And he's really excited about Katie Porter. So I went and I looked, and this was as of last night. Democrat Katie Porter takes lead over incumbent GOP rep Mimi Walters as two House races in OC battleground remain too close to call. So I decided to look up and figure out who the hell is Katie. So here's what I did. And this is from her website, everyone. But, you know, it's kind of a puff piece and it's going to say positive things about her. But she's pretty incredible. And I now understand a little bit about why David is just psyched out of his mind that she may win. As a consumer protection attorney, that's the operative word, Katie Porter has spent nearly 20 years fighting powerful interests and Wall Street banks on behalf of consumers and families. Oh, my God, she may be in Congress. All right, calm down, Arnie. She is a national leader in consumer protection and has won big victories against financial institutions who cheat consumers. Before the housing bubble burst, Katie was one of the first to sound the alarm about Wall Street's predatory practices targeting homeowners, winning recognition from the New York Times and many others. In 2012, then-California Attorney General Kamala Harris appointed Katie to be California's watchdog against the banks. The banks had promised to pay billions to homeowners they cheated, and Harris appointed Katie to make sure the banks followed through. Katie and her team held the bank's feet to the fire, securing over $18 billion and helping tens of thousands of families move forward with their lives. As an advocate, Katie has sought reforms that help families get a fair shake in our economy. She has been a key player in the fight against abusive credit card fees and in 2010 helped pass important federal credit card protections for families. She has written three books that document how Washington's special interests skew our laws, cut off our legal rights of families who actually play by the rules. She is a mom of three wonderful children, and she teaches consumer law at the University of California. So, uh, and I have to thank David for tweeting about this Katie Porter person, because I'm like, holy moly, she sounds incredible. She sounds a little bit like sort of the Elizabeth Warren of the House of Representatives. And, and that's, again, another reason why I'm excited about these new voices, not just female voices, but these new voices that have come to Congress. A lot of them have come to Congress, not because anyone knocked on their door. A lot of them have come to Congress out of frustration with the inability of Congress to get anything done. A lot of them have come to Congress because they understood that change wasn't going to happen because a party was going to find them or invite them in, that change was going to happen if they stepped up to the bar, threw themselves you know, into the arena and decided to run. And uh, again, I'm going to remind everyone that uh, when I was running for Congress, and I lost, uh, but what I really loved was the fact that I had Bella Abzig's room uh, at the uh, Institute of Politics at Harvard. And that was the room that I I was assigned. She had had it many, many years ago. She was a congresswoman from New York, very flamboyant, wore big hats. And Bella Abzug's famous quote, and I want people to hear this, and I'm going to say it over and over again. And Bella said, you have to lose, lose, lose to win. And what I think is so exciting about this election is that we did have enough wins so people saw that winning was possible. We also had a significant number of losses. So people also recognize that losses is part of the game. But the losses were so incredibly close. We saw very close races in places like 
Texas. We saw we're seeing incredibly close races right now. And we're going through recounts in Georgia and Florida and the people that came so close in those very conservative states, those states that are historically Republican, did not offer a tepid message. They offered really, I think, an incredible message and a very progressive one about the fact that if you want change, guess what? Who has to be a partner in change is government. I mean, if you want to figure out what's going on with the, you know, gross gross inequality in America, one of the ways that you address the gross inequality is looking at what corporations are not doing. And I don't know if you saw this, Susan. I know we're trying to get a hold of David right now. But one of the things I thought was amazing was they took, like, I think the top 1,000 companies. This was, I believe, a story in the New York Times today. And uh, they got this historic tax cut. Remember, they were bitching and moaning about the fact that they pay the highest corporate taxes in America. And yet, for whatever reason, um, they were given this amazing tax cut, more than they even imagined. I refer to it sort of as a, a corporate wet dream. And, uh, and they promised that they would deliver by producing all these jobs. Well, it turns out that, yes, they delivered 78,000 new jobs, but then they eliminated almost double the number of jobs. So the net was a net loss of about 80,000 jobs. Screw them. You know, so what was the benefit of the investment? They bought out their stock. They massaged stockholders. They added, you know, probably benefit packages to management. And they ended up like, you know, shrinking the job pool. You know, so you see those kinds of things, everyone. And I just want to tell you, I'm just so, so offended. And uh, and I want people to realize that. It's not that government is going to produce a job, but government is going to make sure that there's a level playing field when it comes to jobs and job creation. The other thing that government is going to do is make sure that there's a floor and you better have a floor. I mean, the reason why you want government involved is that that's why we have child labor laws. The reason why you want to have government involved is that's why we have minimum wage laws. The reason why you want to have government involved is that if your employer doesn't provide you with health insurance, there's a chance you might be able to get expanded Medicaid. And frankly, we should be doing Medicare for all because because frankly, you should not have to depend on your employer for health care. That is not your employer's job. Let me repeat that. Your employer is to hire you for your skills. Let me remind everyone, hire you for your skills. Hire you because you'll be responsible. Hire you because you're reputable. Hire you because you'll show up. Hire you because you produce a result. Not because you need health insurance. That is not a rationale for employment, and that is not a rationale for employers providing you with health insurance. And the only reason why they sort of fell into this is that I think at some point in time, was it I ran around World War II, I think they put some sort of a a wage freeze. And as a way of sort of, you know, distinguishing one employer from another, they started adding more to the remuneration package. And that included things like health care. And then basically what happened was it became an assumption that government that government doesn't provide you with health care, but that business provides you with health care. And uh, I think the interesting thing right now isn't that I want expanded Medicaid or that I, you know, I want, you know, all these other sort of interesting, you know, um, pre-existing conditions. You can stay in your parents and, you know, health insurance to your 26. That's all crap. Let me just tell you something. What you want is to be able to go to a doctor when you're sick. That's what you want. Be able to go to a doctor for, you know, for preventative medicine. And that is a universal need. It doesn't look at your it doesn't look at your geography. It frankly doesn't look at your age. It frankly doesn't look at your poverty. It just means that when you are ill, you have access to the requisite care you need. So I think that that's real important. You know what I think? I refer to universal health care 
or Medicare for all, like the fires in California. Now, why do I say that? Because the fires in California does, does not distinguish between a rich zip code and a poor zip code. Because the fires in California don't care which street it burns or which house it burns or which business it burns. It's just there and it goes across the board and it's devastating. I think I heard this morning 7,000 homes are gone. 7,000. That's unbelievable. It doesn't include also the businesses that have been eliminated. But when you realize the fires are not over, in some areas it's only 30% containment, in some areas they're even starting new fires that are going like they, they jump 20 acres in 15 minutes. Uh, the indiscriminate sort of ability of fires to sort of go anywhere tells you that that's another reason why Medicare for All is like the fire. You know, it doesn't discriminate, it just shows up. And frankly, that's a rationale for it. And then last but not least, I see we're having some issues with David, is this. And so um, Ralph, one of our great listeners, and he lives in New Hampshire, is always sending me these interesting messages. And one of the messages is that um, I, 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 I get from Ralph was he was sending me an article, Susan, from Japan, from I think it was like the Japanese Times or something. And this is relevant to the United States. And the Japanese Times, let me see if I can recollect what he sent me, but it was something to the effect of they were just about to offer like thousands and thousands of visas to foreign workers around the world to come in and guess what they were doing, Susan? They were doing sort of retail and restaurant and construction and whatever. And what we know, and these were visas, so these means they weren't going to be residents. They weren't getting technically a green card. They were going to be here for a temporary reason for a rational purpose. But what do we know about the Japanese? They have an aging demographic. I mean, if we are wicked old, they are really wicked old, all right? And they're all also very racist. I mean, China's racist. I hate to say this in the Japanese. They don't want to they don't want to sort of bring in others, but they need others in order for them to survive. So they've done all this. And I suddenly realized we need to take a page out of what the Japanese are doing. And we need to sort of have a come to Jesus moment with our visas. We don't need to put troops on the border. We don't need to see these people coming across in caravans. We need to have visa programs now because in places like Houston and places like California, they're going to need thousands and thousands and thousands of people, all kinds of construction level uh, work, some with expertise, some with no expertise, to do the incredible rebuilding of infrastructure, then homes, then schools, then businesses, and we don't have the requisite personnel to do it. It's 345,000 foreign workers. Is that how many in Japan? Yeah, because Ralph sent me the same article. Isn't that an amazing story? What's really interesting, too, is... Uh, there were 14 selected industry. Listen to them. Yeah, yeah nurse, nursing care is one well, of the they're top. They're old. They're old. Well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, with followed up by the restaurant industry, restaurant industry. construction, building clean and building cleaning firms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want people to under look what the Japanese have suddenly. They've had their come to Jesus moment. They know this has been hard to do. In fact, there's a lot of pushback against what the government is doing by expanding these visas. But, but you know, reality bites in Japan. And the reality says we do not have the requisite workers. And I am not saying that people should come here illegally. They better come here legally. I want to make sure that they, they, they're they given at least a, at, a, at a minimum the minimum 
minimum wage, whatever that is, that they get worker protections, that it doesn't then, you know, take away from the people that are already in the workforce. I want to elevate the people in the workforce. But let's be honest. This story is perfect for the story you sent me about New Orleans with the doctor. There was a doctor in New Orleans that built a statue that basically recognized the value of all the Hispanic workers that had rebuilt New Orleans. It is an ama- And he was a doctor who took care of lots of people, who was in those flooded hospitals, who understood how important these people were. And he said, we need to say thank you and recognize their value. Well, apparently the Japanese have figured out that they've got an awful lot of old people who are going to need who are going to need basic, I mean, you know, these aren't skilled workers, but you don't need to be a skilled Retail. worker to wipe a, wipe a butt. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you need a person and not a robot. Yeah. See that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I talk to home health care workers a lot. And they, you know, they're constantly under the gun to do more with less money, with less time. And she says, how do I bathe a person who's senile faster than what I'm doing now? You tell me how I do it. She said, well, it's, it, there's a weight issue, there's an ability issue, there's a time issue, there's a cleanliness issue. You speed me up and you tell me that I'm doing my job. Well, and every person is different. Uh, and I, oh, yeah, I say this uh, after, as someone who spent two months in a hospital yeah. getting my butt wiped, um, yeah. you know, exactly. it, I had, what, eight broken ribs and a badly broken leg. So people had to be pretty careful with me. It's it's it is it, it wasn't like you could put me on a conveyor belt. Well, and and that's the thing. I mean, there are going to be jobs that guess what human beings still need to do. And frankly, there's another reason why you want home health aides and you need them and they need to be they need to be everywhere when they're needed. And, and they should is, be valued way oh more than God. we value them oh because the work that they do is so important. And it's let me just say something. It's also really important for old people that they be touched. That the need for human touch, I'm going to start to cry, is so important. And I'm going to use an example from my own family. My father and mother were cared for by um, a, a, a woman from Haiti. And she was incredible. But she was incredible because not only was she gifted in caring for them, but she understood the need and their need to be touched. And that it was that kind of thing that kept my mother alive, and it was the kind of thing that kept my father vital. And when both my parents died, she's now living with a a friend's um, mother and father, uh, and the father just recently died. But he said to me, the best gift you gave us, she said, Jeanette is an angel. Jeanette is so important. Jeanette understands understands the human emotion. It isn't her caring alone. It's her, it's her social IQ. <laughs> Let me remind everyone that. It is her social IQ. She has the highest IQ for understanding need before we even figure it out, of knowing how to respond to that need before we even figure it out. You can't teach it. She has developed it. She's got an A+, a PhD in it, and it is invaluable. And I and I don't think people understand that those are the kinds of qualities that that really we don't embrace, you know, we don't value, and yet they are probably the most important. They really, really are. What do we talk about with doctors and nurses? Lousy bedside manner, <laughs> you know. That you that a lot of lawsuits could actually well, yeah, not re- happen. Remember my back surgeon? Oh yes. <laughs> I wound up loving him, oh, but gosh, he was crabby. Yeah. <laughs> 
but 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 I'm just telling people that it's really interesting that that good bedside manner makes a huge difference, and it makes a difference even in when a doctor makes a mistake or a nurse makes a mistake. If people understand that it was a mistake, it wasn't intentional. That for what you'd be shocked at the number of lawsuits that sort of disappear as a result because they've developed a relationship. And I think that that's also important. That's another word to sort of the wise of the future. Well, and caring for people who are slipping into dementia is a whole different dimension. I was a caregiver for an elderly woman up north, and I knew that she was, you know, starting to, it was obvious that she was starting to to disappear. But to keep her for as long as we could, We did everything that we could to keep her part of the community, part of her life. So she and I went to different places to walk um, because she had had a stroke and had uh, trouble with one leg. So we went to places where she could see the white, she could see Mount Washington. It was a part of her life, you know, for her the whole time she lived up there. And those, and we took her. she and I went to co- out for coffee in town to the place that everybody went to. And even if she couldn't remember who they were, she was happy to see people greeting her. And, yeah. and it, you know, those were the kinds of things of that we did. Yeah, exactly. just, you know, because we knew that if she stayed home watching television, she was going to turn and she was just going to disappear before our eyes. Exactly, exactly. And then last but not least, I was um, at church on Sunday, and um, there was a social worker from a hospital who was the greeter that day. And she got up and talked, and she had just retired after, I think, 40 years of working as a hospital social worker. And she had us all crying because she was talking about the gift that her patients had given her, not just you know the fact that she loved her job, she said, I got so much out of them. They're, they cared for me as much, if not more, than I cared for them. And I can't thank them for making such a difference in my life. And it was great because I got a chance and I said, I want to channel Marty's thank you to you. I said, because when he was dying and all the nurses came to say goodbye to him on his last chemo treatment, I never had a chance to say thank you to those remarkable, remarkable women. I said, and you are sort of emblematic of the people who understand um, what the caring profession is. And, uh, and so those are, those are the kinds of things that we, we absolutely need to talk about. And those, in part, I think are also some of the voices that we're not going to see in legislatures around the country. Those are the kinds of voices we're going to now see in Congress around the country. And, uh, and not only did these women and men come in, but let me just tell you something. There were a lot of people that got excited working for them, supporting them, and doing whatever. Uh, but as a result of that, uh, I think people need to understand that there really is going to be uh, a quality of life difference. All right, everyone. This is The Attitude with Arnie Arnes and co-host Susan Bruce. Obviously, we didn't get David Day in, uh, but we have an interesting guest to talk about education next. This is The Attitude. We will have a little labor history next. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1938. That was the day that the National Federation of Telephone Workers was founded in New Orleans, Louisiana. Today, the union is known as the Communication Workers of America and represents 700,000 workers in a wide range of communication fields. Attempts to organize the telephone industry began as early as 1910 by the International Brotherhood of 
electrical workers. By the end of the decade, the IBEW had more than 200 telephone unions. Growth in the number of union members in the telephone industry was greatly impeded due to World War I. During the war, President Woodrow Wilson issued an order to, quote, hereby take possession and assume control and supervision of each and every telegraph and telephone system and every part thereof within the jurisdiction of the United States. He placed control of the industry under the authority of the Postmaster General. After the war ended, telephone companies increasingly installed company unions as a way to control their workers' organizing efforts. Their aim was to stave off unionism from outside organizations. Nearly all of the IBEW locals lost their membership to company unions. But when Congress passed the Wagner Act in 1935, a new surge of independent unionism began in the telephone industry. In 1938, 31 organizations joined together in New Orleans to form the National Federation of Telephone Workers. It was a loose association of locally independent unions. But by 1947, it became clear that the union would have to form a strong national presence to negotiate with the nationwide companies. And the Communication Workers of America was born. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Here, you are nobody. I'm Bill Newman, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute. And that's what Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, told Guadalupe Placencia who had been picked up by the San Bernardino, California County Sheriff's Office and handed over to ICE because there was a 10-year-old court order to appear as a witness issued for someone with a similar name. Ms. Placencia kept protesting. She is, after all, and has been for decades, a U.S. citizen. She has nothing to do with immigration, nothing. And the agents in response mocked her and added for emphasis, you are nothing. ICE eventually let Ms. Placencia go after her daughter showed the ICE agents her mother's U.S. passport. Later, with the ACLU as her attorneys, Ms. Placencia sued. And just recently, the federal government and the county sheriff's department settled her case for $55,000. Her ACLU of Southern California attorney, Adriana Wong, said, quote, San Bernardino County residents like Ms. Placencia have the right to live and work and raise their children in peace without fear that ICE will arrest them without cause. And the government should be held accountable when it violates people's rights. This case shows, fortunately, that still, at times, the government can be held to account. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU because freedom can't protect itself. History. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Don't know much about geography. Don't know much trigonometry. Don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a slide rule is for. But I do know what it one is two. And if this one could be with you, what a wonderful world this would be. Now I don't claim to be an A student. 
But I'm trying. That's a perfect place to end. I don't claim to be an A student. <laughs> yep, me neither. Me neither. This is The Attitude with Arnie Arneson and co-host Susan Bruce. And, of course, Susan picks our music. So who sings that? Oh, that is Don't Know Much About History by Sam Cooke. Wow. And it just made me laugh. Because I haven't heard that song for a long time. A long time yeah. uh, when he was singing, "Don't know what to do with this. Don't know what to do with a slide rule." And I thought, "Yeah, I never learned that either, yeah. Sam." <laughs> <laughs> I failed remedial math in right, high school. Right. Well, uh, I am the daughter of two public school teachers. My father taught in New York City. My mother taught on Long Island. Um, teaching was uh, the only thing I kind of understood as a career, and in a way, I loved it and hated it. My parents always brought their papers home and their and their student projects home, and they were never. Quite Quite available for us because their students got in the way. I used to be very offended, you know. And uh, but I also admired, especially my dad, who was a remarkable history teacher in New York. And I remember going to college at age seventeen, and we were flying off to Saint Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. Ya sure, ya betcha. And we were talking about our lives and where we were going in the future. And the one thing that my father said, which completely shocked me, is that he said, "This is 1971, everyone. Whatever you do, don't become a teacher." And my father was a fabulous teacher. He was a teacher of the year in New York. And I thought, oh, my God, what's this about? Well, um, we got a book in front of us, Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms. It's now 2018, not 1971. And we have an incredibly well-educated man joining us. Joe Feldman graduated from Stanford, Harvard Graduate School of Education, and NYU Law School. He has written this book. And what is so interesting about your career with all those sort of academic credentials is that, like my dad, you began as a history teacher. Only you began your life as a history teacher in Atlanta public schools. But you have done a lot of other things, including being a principal, a district administrator. You're now running a, uh, an organization that consults on education. So let me welcome you to the program, Joe. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Arnie. So um, I know your book is about grading. And the one thing that, that sort of frustrates me about grading is that we live now in a world that is determined by tests. And not even about a, a test that a teacher would develop, but all these sort of national and state tests and this test and that test, that when we even come to the issue of grading, I'm almost figuring that grading has gone to a backseat because the only grade that apparently matters for a lot of teachers, unfortunately, is those sort of nationalized, standardized tests that sort of define a school. So how do we look at grading and grading for equity as we're looking at a world right now that instead of letting teachers be teachers, really our teachers are now in the, the sort of teach-to-the-test mode, not teach-to-teach? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's behind that is that the people who make the test and the policymakers who endorse those tests believe that those tests are important because they can't rely on teachers' grades to give them accurate and objective information um, because every teacher grades a little bit differently. And so a grade from one uh, classroom's teacher in a subject may not be the same as another. And that's actually true, something that I noticed when I was a principal, is that I could have two teachers, maybe even in adjacent classrooms, both teaching the same course, let's say Algebra one, and they'd use the same textbook, have similar students, have the same training, um, really be teaching in a similar way, using even some of the same curriculum and tests, and yet a student in one class could get a B, and then for that identical performance in the other class could be getting an A. And so I think teachers are sort of stuck because they've gotten themselves into this box where because their grading isn't 
very reliable and, and valid, right. it sort of opens the door to all this test. Well, you, you, you teach teachers, okay? And I'm sure you've been in a lot of settings where, you know, people are getting their master's in education and going to these schools. Is grading taught? Grading is actually never taught uh, in graduate schools, in onboarding when teachers join a new school. Oh, and so that's, yeah, that's the irony. And so yeah. most teachers end up just sort of replicating how they were graded. Right. Um, and that, that perpetuates and continues this ongoing problem we've had for decades and decades in our grading. So uh, the, I'm talking to you in 2018, and I asked this innocent question, having never gone to school for that, um, is grading taught? And yet if grading is such so definitional for what happens to students, for their success, for where they're going, for now that we've turned to these ridiculous tests that I think are, 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 are not satisfying and don't produce requisite results, how come we haven't figured out that we need to teach how to grade? Because that's really what your book is about. And, right. and, 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 I, and I found it fascinating because as you were sort of talking about it, let me just say one of the things that came into my mind when I was talking to one of your publicists. I said, you know, I'm looking at how he's looking at grading, and I see the first thing that jumped into my head was IEPs individual education plans in the sense that you look at this at the child and you look at the child and you look at the child last week last month last year and you see whether learning is happening and change is occurring and that isn't something that always happens you know by the classroom but it does happen by the individual child is part of your grading concept in teaching for grading for equity about looking at the child, not necessarily what the expectation is at a particular grade level or what's happening in the classroom? Well, I mean, what's, what's interesting in how you talk about things is that, um, you know, students can improve over time. That's actually what we hope happens in schools. But the way that we grade actually doesn't um, reward students for improvement. So let me give you an example. Most of the time what we do is we take all the students' scores over the whole term. So let's say at the beginning of the unit, I was trying to teach a student how to learn, a, how to write a persuasive essay, and their first essay, because they have no idea how to do it, is terrible, and so it's an F or a D, and the next one's a C, and maybe the next one's a C plus, and then finally at the end of the term, they write a, just a dynamite persuasive essay at an A level. Well, rather than say that student is an A student in writing a persuasive essay, we average all of those scores over time. So we end up saying that that student is actually at a C level or a B minus level. And that idea of averaging is something that every teacher does. The, the grading software does it uh, automatically, but it doesn't give us accurate information and it doesn't really recognize how learning happens over time. Oh, God, start teaching about grading. I mean, that, that is so obvious because what you want to do is you want to get to success. And if you and, and the assumption is if you don't start at success, you'll never get an A. But if you get to success, you don't get an A either. <laughs> right. You know, and, and that that really, as you point out, isn't rewarding learning. Right. And it's actually very demotivating to students. You can imagine the student who gets a couple of low grades at the beginning of a term and mathematically it just becomes impossible for them to get a really high score. Yeah. So it's it's there's no incentive that we've built in because of the way that we've been grading for for decades. So that 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 seems obvious and rational 
And, um, and, and, but, you know, obviously part of the problem is, is that there's a lot of competition with parents and getting into college and all those kinds of things. And they're going to say, oh, but wait a minute, you know, my kid got all A's, you know, well, that's good. Um, and this kid got, you know, it's 10 D's and then got B's and a couple of A's and you're giving them the same sort of quality, um, letter grade as my child who got all A's. So what do we do recognizing that part of the problem isn't just that you want to see a child succeed, but part of the problem is, is there's still a level of competition because in the end, competition is what gets you into a Harvard or gets you into a St. Olaf. Right. And, and I think there's a couple things in that. The first is um, it goes back to an idea that there have to be a limited number of A's, that, that uh, people exist on a bell curve and what you've got to do is be able to skim off the top and identify them. And we actually don't believe that in our schools anymore. We don't believe that there's only a certain number of A's that can be acquired. It's just like if you have a, a bullseye, the bullseye doesn't get smaller if more people hit it. So I think we've got to kind of get over this idea of, of a bell curve applied to learning. The, the second thing is that we actually aren't giving always accurate information about students. So let me take two students that sit next to each other in a classroom. One of them is just an angel, does everything the teacher asks, always comes on time, always has a perfectly organized notebook, but doesn't know the content very well, maybe at a C level. But that student ends up getting a B because they're just doing everything the teacher asks. And then you have a student sitting next to them who's the reverse, who knows all the content very, very well, but comes in late a, a day or two a week, has a messy notebook, um, maybe slumps down in her seat, and that student then is getting a low grade for that part of their behavior. And we collapse all of the things that a student does so they both could get a B, even though they are totally different students. And so that's another uh, historical remnant that we continue using in our schools when we collapse lots of information. So the grade isn't even giving us valid info about what the student knows. All right. Yeah, oh, we're smiling. I'm looking at my co-host, who probably was that second child. I, I, I was the <laughs> second kid. <laughs> I mean, she's a freaking genius. With, with a, a bad attitude. With a bad attitude. Exactly right. But, 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 but teachers are human, Joe. Teachers are human, and kids figure it out. I'm a, I watch my kids manipulate their parents. You know, come on. You and I both know that. You have children as well. So, they, you know, people understand that there are certain things, and there is also an expectation. Let me just say something. There is also an expectation and a value for showing up. There's also an expectation and a value for sort of being organized. There's also an expectation and a value for um, being polite and not being disruptive 90% of the time. So how do you reward um, certain kind of behavior without academically hurting, you know, the other child. And yet at the same time, I want someone, I want someone who shows up in class. Right. So uh, some schools do that by having different grades, right? They'll give a student two grades for a course, one on how strong they are academically around the content and one around the behaviors. Okay. Another way that teachers do it is they give feedback on all those really important behaviors that we want kids to know and be able to do but they don't put it into the grade. So maybe they have awards, or maybe they write notes home to parents, or they just give other kind of feedback, like, I am so proud of you, how well you were paying attention today, which actually means a lot to a kid. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I hear you. And then well, I'm, I'm looking at an old an essay that you had written, and one of the other things you point out in your essay, which is the number three, you write, in traditional grading, students get a single opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge on a test. And if they make mistakes... Those mistakes stick with them. There are no possibilities to learn from those mistakes, to redeem themselves. So how do we do that? 
Well, I mean, interestingly, the professional world is one where we do get to redeem ourselves from mistakes. If you think about any time we have to show competence, like a driver's test or um, the bar exam or national medical boards or credentialing programs, you get to take the test multiple times until you do as well as, you're, as you'd like to do. And we can do the same thing for students. We can say, you didn't do well on that test because you've, sti- you know, you've learned two-thirds of it, but you still haven't shown mastery in this last third. So you need to study some more and learn from your mistakes. And now I'm going to give you another test. It might be the same. It might be something different on the part you haven't learned yet and see if you learn it. And if you learn it, fantastic. Welcome to the real world. We saw strikes in um, West Virginia, in Oklahoma, uh, in certain parts of my state that are property poor. Uh, They should be striking because they basically cannot fund teachers. They cannot fund textbooks. They cannot fund schools. So, you know, all this story about grade for equity is a wonderful thing. But the other point, I think, of grading for equity is that it assumes that a teacher is given the time is given the requisite number of students in a class and doesn't have, you know, 32 students but maybe has 18, that there might be someone in the class who's disruptive so there's an aid to assist. Part of all this is the challenge of teaching at a time when we really have been disinvesting in public education. We talk about the money we spend, but you know that there are sort of acres of mediocrity and pockets of excellence. And I'm just trying to figure out that's part of the equity talk, Joe. That's right. And, and education, as you, as you suggest, is very, very complex, and there's so many different layers that, that go into it. I think one of the things that teachers like so much about this work is that the grade is actually something they have total control over. It's one of, it's one of the only areas in their entire profession where oftentimes in state education code and district regulations, nobody can overwrite their grade. So if teachers can actually have total control over this piece of their practice, let's have them do grading practices that align with equity work and make their grading really accurate and really motivate students. Um, When everything else might get taken away, they can always have this. So, you know, as, as I'm thinking about equity and I was talking about what I see, the struggles for certain schools, there are also struggles for so many kids. So part of the issue, too, is is that, you know, we, we, we have stopped, you know, tracking kids in a lot of places. And that's fine. And that's a good thing, I think. Uh, but I'm more mainstreaming kids. And yet, you know, some kids come in hungry and some kids come in with new shoes and a great breakfast and whatever. So how does a teacher address all the sort of sort of backpack of problems that she knows a student has and she wants the student to trust them in order to not only help them academically, but also to make sure that the grade results recognizes the challenges not only that they have in the classroom, but the challenges they have before they even get to the classroom. That's right. And what we want to establish, as you mentioned, is trust. And the way that you build a trusting teacher-student relationship is having the student believe that the teacher wants them to do their best and will not penalize them for anything in their past and won't do anything to slow them down and and make them not get recognized for what they know and can learn. And so they can make a whole lot of headway in that direction through their grading. So 
it's it goes back to one of the examples I just gave, which was you know the averaging of all the performance. Right. So if you have these two students, one of them might have gone to a summer program that their parents put them in at the local university where they learned how to write a persuasive essay, and their parents are looking at every one of their essays before they hand it in to proofread it. And so that student is going to get good grades from the very beginning of the term, and the other student won't. And so if a student knows that my early mistakes aren't going to penalize me and be averaged into my performance, but I'm only going to be judged on how I do at the end, whether that be the end of the unit or after I do a retake or a second retake, I'm going to have a much more trust and, and sort of um, uh, respect for my teacher because they respect me and they're not going to penalize me for things outside my control. Okay, so uh, again, we're, we're talking about this new book, Grading for Equity, why, what it is, why it matters, and how it can transform schools and classrooms. As you heard from Joe Feldman, they don't teach grading at, when you go to teachers' colleges. That oh my shocking. God, that's shocking. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I want to start screaming at every teacher's college I know going, get with the program. But as, as I'm listening to you, you talk about parents that assist kids, and you really want parents to to work with children. You want them to know what they're doing. You want them to ask interesting questions. You want them to help, but you don't want them to actually do the project. You don't want them to write the report. How do you talk about cheating where kids sometimes feel the need to cheat when sometimes I think the parents are the ones that are cheating? Because the parents is doing the report or the parents is rewriting the essay or the parents are doing that. They're not helping. They're actually actively cheating. Yeah, and I think that Part of what we've done as teachers is we've incentivized cheating because what we've done is we've said every homework assignment counts and everything you do counts. We, we, we grade students on every homework assignment, every um, practice uh, that they do in the classroom, and when everything is part of the grade, there's intense pressure on students and stress to get everything done in a perfect way because